Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're going to pick it up at verse 16 of Acts chapter 16. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a back a background, uh, uh, Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and uh, so that's kind of the background here. Verse 16, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. And as I titled this, Encountering Spiritual opposition, one of the first things that we need to understand as believers is that you can expect spiritual opposition. You know, whenever there is a work of the Lord taking place, our adversary, the devil, is going to pull out all the stops to try to either distract us. And you know, to be honest with you, I think the whole COVID pandemic was a great distraction for the church. I mean, it just got us focused on the wrong things, I think personally, my opinion. But his work is to distract. His work is to distort the message of the gospel. His, his work is to discourage believers and also to destroy any work that the Lord would do. You know, we have a lot of scriptures that describes Satan to us, the devil. We're told in 1 Timothy 3.16, or 3.6, excuse me, that he's puffed up with pride. That's the original sin. That, that's what caused Satan to fall from heaven was pride. And so it's no wonder that he will work on the pride of people. We're also told in John 8.44 that he is a murderer and a liar and no truth is in him. Jesus said in John 10.10 that he seeks to kill, excuse me, to steal and to kill and to destroy. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.8 that our, our adversary, he's like a lion prowling about seeking whom he may devour. Jesus said in Luke 8.12 that he does not want anyone to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. I mean, that's, that's his, he wants to thwart anybody from coming to faith in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says that he takes advantage of people. In Acts 10, verse 38, he oppresses people. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11.14 that he transforms himself into an angel of light. He's very deceptive. He's a deceiver. We're told in Acts 13.10 that he's deceitful, he's fraudulent, and he perverts the straight way of the Lord. So whenever there's a work of the Holy Spirit, whenever there's a work of the Lord, Satan is there to distract, to discourage, to deceive, and to destroy. And so Paul and Silas, they're here, and, and, and they're here in this, in this city of Philippi, 
And we've already read about Lydia, right? Lydia, the seller of purple, the first European convert comes to faith in Christ. So, so there's a work that's starting to take place. But now Paul and Silas, as they're walking through the marketplaces, wherever they're going, they're being followed by this girl. And, and the words in the Greek, it says, the girl followed us. And what it means is to follow closely. In other words, they were like, right, you know, if he stopped, she'd probably bump right into him. They're right behind them. Everywhere that Paul would go, there's this demon-possessed slave girl right on their heels. And it says that the girl cried out. That word cried is an onomatopoeia. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I had to look it up because I'm like, what is an onomatopoeia? Whatever. Uh, it actually, it's a word that's written to describe a sound. You know, like the word oink? That was, that's actually a word that was written or it's created to just describe what a pig's, pig says or meow or roar or chirp. Well, this word is an imitation of the cry of a raven. That's what this word actually is, that she cried out. And it's also used of words uttered with a loud voice. And I'm not a Greek expert, so, but I read this. The imperfect tense indicates that she was crying out over and over. So if I can put that all together, she's speaking very, very loud. She's... It's constant. She's, it's, like, it's not like she's you know, a couple hours later. She's constantly crying this out, and it sounds like a raven cawing. And here's what she's saying. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Hey, that's true, isn't it? You know, it's interesting in, in the literal translation of the Bible and Young's literal translation, it says that these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us a way of salvation. Now, I don't know if that's in the original uh, Greek or not, but that's how those two Bibles translate it. But it sounds, and it is obviously truthful, because that's what Paul and Silas were there to do. They're servants of the Most High God, and they're proclaiming to the people of Philippi, this is how you come to faith, you know, this is how you're saved, by through faith in Christ Jesus. John MacArthur's got an interesting comment on this. He says, The father of lies speaks the truth, when it suits his purposes, disguising himself and his emissaries as angels of light. Some of his most effective and diabolical work is done in the name of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. He often uses a little truth to ensnare people in a false system of religion. Since the demon-possessed girl was agreeing with the Christian preachers, the natural assumption would be that she was part of their group, she would then have been in a position to do unspeakable harm to the cause of Christ. So it, they'd be like, well, she must be part of, their, part of their group. And think of the destruction that the enemy could do. So this, what Paul and Silas are encountering, it's an all-out frontal, yet it's deceptive, assault on the work. You know, it's, it's coming from exterior, from outside there. And yet, spiritual opposition sometimes isn't a front. You know, Satan doesn't come pounding on your door to attack you. Sometimes it comes through the back door, actually. Spiritual opposition may come in through the back door within the church. You know, it's interesting. Jesus talked about the, about the church age, and he gave the parables of the tares and the wheat. You remember that parable? There was a, there was a man who had a field, and he, was, he had sowed wheat, 
uh, uh, wheat seed in the, in the ground, and an enemy came along and, and, and at night and planted tares in the same field. And so the workers of the field were all concerned, and they asked the, the, the owner of the field, what do we do? Do we, we? And he said, just leave them there. And at the harvest time, that's when we'll, we'll separate it. And he was speaking about the church age, that there be tares among the wheat. Do you guys remember the parable of the sower and the seed? In Mark's gospel, in chapter 4, verse 13, the disciples come to Jesus after he tells this parable. And they ask him, what does this mean? And Jesus said something interesting. He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And what's being inferred is if you don't understand this parable, you're going to have a hard time with some of the other parables that Jesus was going to speak. In other words, there's some key things in this parable that would apply to other parables. One of the things in that parable is the birds of the air. Remember the birds of the air? They're the ones that come down and eat the seed. And Jesus said that, that that's the enemy. That's Satan trying to take the word out of people's hearts so that they don't, it doesn't take root in them so that they're not saved. They represent the enemy that snatches the seed that falls on the soil. And what's interesting is a few verses later, Jesus tells another parable, and it's the parable of the mustard seed. And, and he says there in Mark 4, verse 32, but when it is sown, it grows up, becomes greater than all herbs, and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now, in the previous parable, the birds of the air were evil. They're, they're bad. And sometimes go, look at the, the mustard seed. The church is growing so big. Yeah, but the enemy has infiltrated it. And that's what this parable is about. So how does the enemy deceive from within? I like John MacArthur actually kind of hit on it. He'll say truth, 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 and then he'll slip in a lie. And then there'll be more truth and more truth. And then the lie. And that's, it becomes hard because it's like, but they're speaking truth, but yet there's something that's just not quite right what they say. We have to be very discerning. Paul wrote this to a young pastor named Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. And I believe that he was talking about the day and age that you and I live in today. He said, but know this that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. And as a pastor, when I look out into Christianity at large, I see a lot of trends towards people being lovers of themselves. Churches are there, they don't want to talk about sin, they want to make you feel good. They want to give an inspiring message so that you leave there feeling good about yourself. And there are times when that's appropriate. Last week, however, in our Calvary Chapel, Chapel, excuse me, Calvary Chapel Distinctives class, I made this statement. I said any teaching or even a worship song or a teacher that elevates man 
and takes the focus off the centrality of Jesus Christ, we stand firmly opposed to. Because I think that's one of the, that's one of the deceptive things that the enemy is doing in Christianity today. Taking the focus, elevating man, and as a result of that, you're lowering Christ. And so this slave girl, it says that she did this for many days. If you were Paul and someone's just on your heels, kind of screeching with a what kind of a hoarse voice or whatever, and saying this everywhere you go, I mean, can you imagine his patience for him to wait many days? Why didn't Paul address it sooner? Is he just a patient person? Or is it that he just didn't want to act rashly? And this is my opinion. Scripture doesn't tell us. But I believe Paul was praying about it and waiting for the Holy Spirit to say, okay, do something about this. That's my own opinion. Jesus said something along the lines, you know, he was, his disciples couldn't cast a demon out of this, out of this one young man. And the, the, the parents, the people all around came to Jesus and said, hey, your, your disciples couldn't do it. And so Jesus casts out the demon. And then later on, the disciples come to Jesus and say, why couldn't we do it? In Mark 9, verse 28 and 29, it says, When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Sometimes it's what you need to do. You just need to pray and seek the Holy Spirit's leading in this. One thing that's, I think, so important to keep in focus is people might be the vehicle of spiritual opposition, but always remember this, they're not the source. They might be the vehicle, but they're not the source. Because look what Paul does. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of that, came out that very hour. You see, it wasn't the girl that greatly annoyed Paul. Here's this girl who's enslaved by man, literally enslaved by man. She was demon-possessed, and so she was also enslaved by demons, and she was exploited by her masters for fortune-telling. I mean, they didn't really care about her. They just cared about using, taking advantage of her demon possession to do fortune-telling. But Paul turned not to the girl, to the spirit and commanded, uh, commanded it to leave. And you know, that's quite a bit like Jesus. As we read about that in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 1, verse 23, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you, Nazareth, excuse me, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Jesus talked to the source. The source was the demon. Later on in that same chapter, verse 34, then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. And so I think this is the exact same thing. Paul is just doing what Jesus did. Verse 19, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. 
And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. You know, the slave girl's masters, they didn't care. I mentioned that earlier. They didn't care about the girl. They just cared about the fact that they were losing money because they were taking advantage. They were exploiting her because of her demon possession. And so this crowd is riled up. These, these merchants, uh, uh, these, these masters of the slave girl, they're riled up and they seize Paul and drag him into the marketplace. Actually, Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace. You know, I wonder what goes, was going through Paul's mind at that time. Because, you know, in Acts chapter 8, when we read about Saul of Tarsus, what did he do? He went to other cities and he grabbed saints, men and women, probably children too, and dragged them, dragged them off to prison. And so here Paul the persecutor, Saul the persecutor, now Paul the apostle, and now he's being dragged. You know what's interesting about this time frame? Acts chapter 18 references it. But around this exact same time that this is taking place and we're reading, in Rome, Claudius Caesar had already expelled Jewish citizens from Rome. That happened, we read about that in Acts chapter 18. And then what's also interesting, and recall we talked about it last week, you know, Paul, his practice was to go to a synagogue. Every city he'd go and preach to the Jews. And he gets to Philippi and there's no synagogue. So he goes to the riverside there where, where people are meeting for prayer. It's like an unofficial synagogue. And, and there there's women. There's not even men there. And because there was no synagogue in Philippi, you can kind of infer probably correctly that there weren't very many Jews in Philippi. And then another thing to notice, notice who they dragged off. They dragged off Paul and Silas, two Jewish men, no mention about Timothy and Luke, two Gentiles. And notice what they say. These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. You can sense there's some anti-Semitism going on. Even in those days, anti-Semitism was taking place. What had Paul done? Man, he delivered a slave girl from spiritual bondage. Man, there's nothing better that you could do for someone than to deliver them from spiritual bondage. But what's the accusation? They exceedingly trouble our city. And to justify, they add a legal aspect to their complaint. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Notice there's also a sense of uh, patriotism there, right? These Jews, us Romans, notice that? You see, it was a pretense for what they were really upset about. They, it wasn't the laws. They were losing money. It, it always, you know, they have that saying, follow the money, right? It always boils, it comes back to, to money. You see, these men... Their motive wasn't laws, it wasn't concern about Rome, it was greed. That was their motive. That was the underlying motive. And yet, that wasn't the true source either. 
See, this was a spiritual stronghold, Philippi was, and the kingdom of God is invading that spiritual place of, 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 of enslavement. And the enemy noticed it, and the enemy's going to do something about it. People are being set free from bondage, and Paul and Silas and the apostles there are pointing them to the Savior. The enemy's not going to take that lying down. But notice what the enemy does. The enemy was using man's prejudice, there's some anti-Semitism in there, and man's greed to fight the battle. They didn't know that they were pawns of the devil, but they were. The, the, they were literally being used as tools of the devil. You know, the thing is, they themselves were in bondage, the same bondage as the slave girl that had been, they just didn't realize it. I mentioned that spiritual opposition can happen from within the body of Christ. And when that happens, it, or excuse me, let me just read this. Spiritual opposition can happen from within the body of Christ when lives are being ruled by the flesh. You see, we have to be so careful to not walk in the flesh, but to be constantly being filled with the Spirit and walking according to the Spirit. It's so important for you and I as believers. I want to make this statement. I believe this very firmly. Born again, regenerated believers cannot be possessed by demons, okay? I just, there's no scriptural support for it. If you, if you have one that you think, well, what about this? You can talk to me later. We'll, we'll, we'll argue back and forth. I believe this firmly. The scripture does not support that believers can be possessed by, demon, by demons. But when you or I are walking according to the flesh, we're walking according to that carnal nature that we've been delivered from. And you see, if Satan can deceive you into walking according to the flesh, he doesn't need to possess a believer. If we're walking in the flesh, he, he doesn't care. We're, we're doing what he wants us to do. Paul said this in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, wrath, excuse me, selfish, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The devil always wants you and I to take the path of least resistance in our lives. The path of least resistance is walking in the flesh. That's the easiest thing to do. Why? Because that's our sin nature. It's reverting back to our carnal nature. There's no resistance. Your flesh is not going to resist you if you're giving in to the works of the flesh. That's, that's the easy, that's the path of least resistance. But walking in the spirit is the path of resistance. Why? Because it goes against our flesh. It goes against the nature that is so inbred in us. It's the path of least resistance. You know, one thing I'm very thankful about is that when you and I come to faith in Christ Jesus, 
we're given the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. And it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to walk against the flow of our flesh, against that path of least resistance. Well, back to our story. Verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So if you see, there's this mob mentality taking place. The crowd goes wild. And, you know, there's this, again, there's this, there's this hint of anti-Semitism because there wasn't a whole lot of Jews in Philippi, and they were a little bit different than the Romans. And so there's this, you know, whenever someone's different, you kind of look at them that way. Well, the crowd goes wild, and here the magistrates, they fail to investigate anything or uphold the law. They just tear off their clothes and proceed to have them beaten with rods. You know, there's a Jewish legal tradition, and it's based on Deuteronomy chapter 25, Verses 2 and 3, it's, I'm going to read it to you. It says, Then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. So the Jews took this, this law in Deuteronomy, and they said, We never want to go... We never want to be, you go too far. So they always did 40 minus 1, so 39. That was the max that a, a Jewish person in a Jewish situation could be beaten. But you see, the Romans, they didn't have any limit. <laughs> so they were severely, severely beaten. And it says, and he put them into the inner prison. A.T. Robertson has a comment on this inner prison. He says, The Roman public prisons had a vestibule in an outer prison, and behind this, the inner prison, a veritable dungeon with no light or air, save what came through the door, uh, came through the door when open. So it's dark, stinks, damp, musty, and, and the only fresh air is whenever they open the door in this place. And it says that they fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, you know, I, I have this, this picture in my mind, maybe you do too, the Puritans, you know, they, you know, they did the stocks, it'd be like two holes in, you know, for your feet or your ankles and, and then two holes for your, for your arms and, and that was it. The Roman stocks were different. They had many holes. And what they did was they would spread your legs out as far as you could physically have them spread and put them in whatever, whatever holes were the first. They wanted to inflict the maximum amount of pain. That's what Roman strocks were in those days. And so here, Paul and Silas are. And there's a work of the Lord taking place in Philippi, and the enemy has attacked. And it looks like the enemy is winning this battle to silence the apostles. And, and I'm just going to let you know, man, if, if you're doing a work of the Lord, you can expect spiritual opposition. Well, how do we combat spiritual opposition of any type well in any battle you need weapons we need weapons to do combat paul said this in second corinthians 10 4 for the weapons of our wherefore warfare are not carnal but mighty in god for pulling down strongholds 
casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Sometimes the battle's just in our minds. What are the weapons? Walking in the Spirit. If you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to combat the flesh. The sword of the Spirit, which we're told is the Word of God. Prayer and worship. Yes, worship is a weapon. Look at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You know, one of the things I think is true so often is that worship is often the overlooked and neglected weapon in our spiritual arsenal, and yet it is a weapon. It is a weapon. Jehoshaphat knew the secret of worship. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some other mercenaries, some other armies, they're all gathered against Judah to go to war against Judah. And so Jehoshaphat's leading his army. And it says, They arose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Seir, Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. Worship was a weapon. David knew the secret of worship. In 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people, these are his own people, spoke of, spoke of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. It was the town of Ziklag, and, and David's mighty men were out doing battle, and, and they come back, and here the, the town had been, had been taken by the enemy, and, the, and their wives and their children had been taken captive, and they want to stone David. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. How did David strengthen himself? I think it was through worship. Man, David was a man of worship. Psalm 34 verse 1. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Here's Psalm 42 verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God for I shall yet Praise him for the help of his countenance. O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mazar. And a few verses later, verse 8, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night his, his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Here, Paul and Silas, they're in a dungeon. They're in the dark. Have you ever felt that way in your own life? It's like, man, God, where are you? I can't even breathe in here. It's just, it's so terrible. 
And you're so far away, it seems. David wrote this, Psalm 32, verse 7. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. David knew the secret of worship. Habakkuk knew the secret of worship. Habakkuk 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high heels. And then this, this passage ends with this, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. In other words, this was a worship song of Habakkuk. Job knew the secret of worship. Job 35 verse 10, but no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? Worship is a weapon of our warfare. A worshiping heart within, it's going to radiate out. You know what's in your heart? Eventually comes out. It'll come out in your speech. It'll come out in your attitudes. If you have a worshiping heart within, it's going to radiate out. Because notice it says that as Paul and Silas are singing, there's other prisoners. There's other people in this dungeon and they're listening to them. You see, they can't see. They're in the darkness just like Paul and Silas, but they can hear them. You know, people are watching you and I, and they're also listening to you and I. How are we responding to the trials? How are we responding to opposition? Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Man, there's a jailbreak. Hey, you're worshiping the Lord and the, there's an earthquake that your chains come off, the, the jails open, and you can leave. But that's not what Paul and Silas did. You see, worship also gives us the strength to persevere. The word persevere is the word, word hupomone. And it means to remain under. A bearing up under and patience and endurance as to things or circumstances. And what it refers to is to remaining under with joy. I mean, Paul and Silas could have bolted out of there. Lord, we're, we're worshiping you and man, poof, the enemies, we can run, we can leave. And they don't. That's fascinating to me. They don't. They stay there. And the jailer, you know, this earthquake, he knows that the doors are open. He draws his sword and he's about to kill himself. Why would he do that? Well, Rome had a really good deterrence for their soldiers and their guards. If you were giving charge of a prisoner and they escaped from your charge, whatever their punishment was due you would get that punishment. So you can bet, man, you know, like the soldiers that are around the tomb when Jesus Christ 
you know, I mean, they were guarding the tomb. It wasn't like they were, you know, they were loafing or they were forget, you know. No, they were guarding the tomb because their lives depended on it. And so a prisoner escapes and you receive the same punishment. Well, why would he commit suicide or want to commit suicide? Well, there must have been murderers among the group of pagan prisoners. And why didn't the prisoners flee? That's a fascinating, that's a legitimate question. For some reason, somehow, Scripture doesn't tell us, Paul and Silas's testimony kept the other prisoners from fleeing. You always see those movies, like, like The Fugitive, you know, they get in this train wreck, and man, everybody's out of there, right? They're getting out of there, they're fleeing. These guys stay, why? I don't know. <laughs> Should have had an answer for you, I don't know. <laughs> and you know, here, their jailer, the one who's got them in this prison, He's about to kill himself. What would you do in that situation? <laughs> Go for it, buddy. You deserve it, right? You've harmed us. You've deserved it. You see, Paul understood that the jailer was the real prisoner. Paul and Silas weren't the prisoners. The jailer was. So verse 28, But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Pastor John Corson's got a, a good commentary here on this. I, I just want to share this with you. Why are you in prison? Why are things not happening? Why aren't things opening up as quickly as you hoped they would? Could it be that because there are prisoners and jailers watching who are about to see what happens in your life when things are shaken up? Could it be because there are people who need to see what's going to happen to you in the midnight hour? For the most part, prosperity only creates jealousy. But when those around you hear you singing in the day of adversity, like the jailer, they will say, what must I do to be saved? And that's exactly what the jailer says. What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, you must be circumcised. <laughs> no, he didn't say that, right? That's what some of the other people, the people of the circumcision would have said. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Paul didn't say that. What did Paul say? Verse 31. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Pretty simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That word believe in the Greek, it's the aorist imperative, which conveys a sense of urgency. In other words, don't put it off. Do this right now. Don't procrastinate because you may not have tomorrow. Now, when you read that, you might be thinking, wait a minute, Paul didn't tell the jailer to repent of his sins. I mean, that's part of the gospel, right? You need to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't say that. Paul also didn't say you must be baptized. Why? Because Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, there was a time when some people came to Jesus and I think they were legitimately asking this question. They, were, they really wanted to know. 
In John 6, 28, they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. You, you want works? Here's the work. Believe in him whom he sent. And so the jailer falls down trembling. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There was humility there in this jailer. There was a humbling and a preparation to turn away from his sin. This jailer had the fruit of repentance. Warren Wiersbe says this, one of the evidences of true repentance is a loving desire to make restitution and reparation wherever we have hurt others. We should not only wash one another's feet, but we should also cleanse the wounds we have given to others. That's exactly what you see taking place here. They believed. It says they were taught the word that night, and then they chose to be baptized in that order. You see, baptism is just an outer symbol of the cleansing that's already taken place in your life. It's, it, it, baptism doesn't save you. It's a response to Jesus Christ and what he's already done. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He and all his family, it says later, he and all his family were baptized. I want to, I want to just share a couple things about that. This is not a proof text for household salvation. Each person, you and I, have to make our own personal decision for Christ Jesus. We're all responsible for the decisions no one can make it for you. So this is not a proof text for household salvation. This is not also a proof text for baptism of infants. I've heard that before. I've heard that verse being quoted. That, that's why we have infant baptism. Because look, the Philippian jailer, he and his entire household were baptized. Man, I tell you, if that's, your, if that's the verse that you stand on for uh, infant baptism, that's pretty flimsy. Because there's no mention of infants here. Plus, it says they spoke the word to all in the house. That implies that everyone that was there were capable of understanding the message and they responded. Verse 34, now when he had brought them into the house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? <laughs> no, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Sounds like a little revenge there, huh? Sounds like it. Robertson explains this. The Lex Valeria, which is a document that was written in B.C. 509, and Lex Posia, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, was written in B.C. 248, says, made it a crime to inflict blows on a Roman citizen. Cicero says, to fetter a Roman citizen was a crime, to scourge him, a scandal, to slay, slay him, parricide. Claudius had deprived the citizens of uh, city of Rhodes of its freedom for having crucified some citizen of Rome. It, it was a big deal. You don't, you don't punish a Roman citizen like that. So was this just a little sweet revenge? Hey, these guys humiliated me. They hurt me. Uh, let them come, and come on their knees. Let them grovel. You ever wanted somebody to grovel before you? I wondered about that. 
Is this just kind of Paul's just kind of wanting to just stick it to him a little bit? Did Paul seek an apology for himself? I don't think so. I think it was for the sake of the believers that were left in Philippi. Verse 38, And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came out and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when he had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. I think Paul cared about this fledgling little church of believers because if they would get away with treating Paul and Silas that way and there would be no, no uh, ramifications for doing something illegal, man, they'd have free reign. They, they, they'd feel justified and they'd feel emboldened, basically, to persecute these young believers that had just come to faith in the Lord. And I think that's why Paul did that, my own opinion. So, you know, we got to the end of this message. And just to remind you, we're going to face spiritual opposition. Listen, if there's never spiritual opposition in your life, you know what, I kind of, maybe, maybe you're not a threat to the enemy. But if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, you may, you're not, maybe you're not always getting spiritual opposition, but there will be spiritual opposition in your life. If you're invading a stronghold of the enemy, he's not going to take it laying down. The assault, opposition may be a full frontal assault like it was with this, with this, uh, this demon-possessed girl, or it could be from within the ranks, ranks excuse me, of the brethren. Whether it's that frontal or, or behind the scenes, it doesn't lessen the impact or the effect. And we don't return fire with fire through the flesh. Right? The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. Walking in the Spirit. Man, we need to do that daily continually be walking in the spirit we need to be daily continuing in the word of god i am so blessed that so many of you took the challenge to read through script read through the bible in a year this year and I, you know if you feel like you're falling behind don't give up that's all my word don't give up just keep pressing on just keep pressing on maybe it'll take you a year and a half it's not that's okay just press in and press on God will reward that in your life. So the word of God, that, you know, that is, that's our anchor. That's what we stand on to come against the lies of the enemy, to come against those, those deceitful things. And then prayer, man, praying, seeking the Lord in his presence, and finally worship. That's one of the things in the last year or so that's just really, really hit home for me personally is in my own devotion time, spending that time worshiping the Lord, audibly worshiping the Lord. I try to do it when my wife's you know, sleeping. I do it quietly so I don't start bellowing out. I don't want to wake her up in the middle of the morning or, or early in the morning. But, but you know, finding that time, whatever's comfortable for you, finding that time to literally worship the Lord. Because I think what worship does is it, 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 it does something in our hearts. It takes our focus off of whatever's, and it, and it brings to where it should be, and that is praising the Lord God and honoring him. It'll change you. The word of God will change you. Prayer will change you. Worship will change you. Walking of the spirit will change you. We're going to go ahead and have communion this morning. I'll have, go ahead and have the worship team come on up. The way we do work, uh the way we do communion here at Calvary Chapel Rochester is worship team. We're going to do a last song.
And as soon as the song starts, you just come up on your own and take the elements, take a cup and take a cracker with you and, and take, bring it back to your seat. And then we'll partake together as one body here. Why don't you guys stand up and I'd like to just pray.